Well, brothers and sisters, friends, if you have a Bible, please turn to 1 Peter. We will be in chapter 3, starting in verse 13. If you don't have a Bible, the blue Bible's in front of you in the pew. It should be on page 1118. 1118. Last week, we took a break from 1 Peter, um, and this week, we're jumping right back into it, and I have been served by the Word through the Lord's Spirit this week as I studied this. It has just been a balm to my heart, and I pray the same for you as we walk through it this morning. 1 Peter, chapter 3, we're going to start in verse 13. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God. In 1866, Hudson Taylor and a band of missionaries landed at a large commercial center on the Grand Canal in China in a city called Yangzhou. Taylor's group consisted of four men, two of their wives, three unmarried women, four children, and 19 native Chinese to help serve and teach. A pretty large party. On June 1st of 1868, so two years after they first arrived, they opened a station, a place to serve the least of these, to educate children, to gather for social discussion with adults. This was a place of peace. This was a place where Christ was spoken of freely and his teaching was practiced mercifully. These missionaries were zealous for what is good. Beginning in early August of that same year, rumors began to spread. The lies accused the missionaries of kidnapping children and performing cruel and dishonest medical procedures. After weeks of facing this slander and being reviled, social shame, stigma, all the things being said against them, the suffering increased to physical persecution. On August 23rd, so a month of being slandered, the end of August, 100 men or so began to riot outside the missionaries' station. They withheld them for that day, but two days later, thousands, 10,000 rioters showed up in the missionaries' compound. They stormed the gates, Taylor and another. They braved the crowd to get through to get to the governor so that he, he can help them settle this riot. 
They left everyone else in the compound who had to jump out of the building after the riders entered the home and looted it and destroyed and set fire to it. They jumped out of a second-story window to save their lives. What is the point of this story? The point is, Christian, as we obey the commands of Scripture, specifically as, as we do so in a peaceful manner, seeking the good of those we serve, we will face suffering. Doing good does not remove the reality that you will face suffering. The opposite is actually true. The Christian life walks the road of suffering, specifically unjust suffering. Suffering for doing good. These missionaries were doing good. They were feeding the hungry. They were healing the sick. They were teaching anyone who would come. And yet, lies were spread about them. Insults and threats were made to them. And eventually, danger and harm was brought upon them. All for doing good. If you've been with us as we've been going through 1 Peter, you may recall that the previous few sermons were about how to honor everyone how to love the brotherhood, how to fear God, and how to honor the emperor. That's kind of the first set of commands that then we do that through our conduct among one another, how we relate to one another. And at the conclusion of that section, in chapter 3, verse 12, Peter's citing Psalm 34, and we read, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer." But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. The idea is that if, if, if you do good, if you seek righteousness, you'll be before God's face. Where there is peace, where there is protection. And you will have his ear, who is the ultimate judge. In many ways, the idea is that the righteous are unharmable. And then we read verse 13. This rhetorical question, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for good works? The answer is no one. No one. And yet, in our day-to-day experience, we don't always feel unharmable. Instead, we can feel quite the opposite. Peter's readers certainly were feeling the opposite. Scan your eyes down to verse 16. There we read that Peter's readers are being slandered and reviled. That's not a future if you're slandered and reviled. It's a present. While you're being slandered today, while you're being reviled, they do not feel unharmable. And we also face this same reality. At work, we can feel alienated because we don't take on a certain project. Or maybe we refuse to join in on talking about the boss or other employees. We can feel that way even from our family who's non-believers. Try to shame us or push us away for the way we raise our children or for our religion. Maybe it's being slandered by a neighbor or a friend or an adult child or even other believers just for doing what is good. The point is is that this text, we can all relate to it very acutely. And from here on out, Peter is going to spend this letter talking about how do we suffer well? 
how do we suffer well? We are unharmable. We will face suffering. How do we do that well? In our text this morning specifically, we're introduced to this new focus of suffering as the unharmable. And what we see is that in our suffering, here's our point, we sanctify Christ in our hearts during our suffering, and we ourselves are sanctified through our suffering. We sanctify Christ in our hearts during our suffering, and we ourselves are sanctified through our suffering. Using sanctified twice there, and I'm going to explain as we go the different use of the word. To see this in the section, you can go ahead and throw that slide up. Thank you. We have five R's to help us to see how either Christ is being sanctified in our hearts or, our, or we ourselves are being sanctified. The five R's are remember the blessing, remove your fear, revere Christ, respond with gentleness, and rest in his will. So look back at verse 13, read verse 13 and 14 with me, and we'll see the first section, remember the blessing. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. As we've already said, the answer to Peter's rhetorical question is a resounding no one. No one. The Lord's face is upon you. His ear is for you. No one can ultimately harm you. And yet that does not mean that you will not suffer in this life. The but at verse 14, but even if you should suffer, it's not contrasting. It's not Peter saying, you're unharmable. Yeah, but I mean, you're, it's, it's, you're going to suffer too. No, he's not talking out of both sides of his mouth. He is clarifying the reality that we live in in this world. He is saying, you cannot be harmed. Indeed, when you suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. It's a positive statement. Indeed, as you suffer, there is blessing before you. Right out of the gate, he is reorienting what it means to suffer. He's helping us see in the fog of suffering what is before us down this path. While suffering is painful, it's not harming you in the sense that it takes away the blessing which is before you. Now this suffering is suffering. Just because there's blessing associated with it doesn't mean that it hurts any less. We need to be abundantly clear about that. If it doesn't hurt, then I don't think Peter would use the word suffer. The word means badly off, means plight, afflicted. It is painful. We don't want to minimize the pain of suffering. Instead, we want to remember as we face it, there is blessing on the other side of it that it cannot take from us. What Peter is doing here, I believe, is that he's recalling the words of Jesus himself. Peter was sitting at the feet of Jesus on the sermon, at the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus finishes his Beatitudes. Matthew 5, starting in verse 10, we read, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when the others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The idea here, friend, is that in your suffering, you're blessed. And that cannot be changed by your suffering. It cannot be removed from you by those who cause your suffering. What this means is that we need to remember while we suffer, Christian, the slanderous word against you is not the last word. The last word is King Jesus saying, welcome, good and faithful servants, enter into my rest. Welcome to your blessing. That's the final word. As we face suffering, we need to remember the blessing that is before us. And Christian, as we do that, as we look forward and upward, we can remove our fear, our next R. Remove your fear. Look what Peter says. The first response to suffering should be for Christians. In verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. This is the first command of two in this whole passage. And a key element to how we sanctify Christ and how we are sanctified ourselves in our suffering. What Peter's doing here is he's, he's citing Isaiah 8. In case you haven't read Isaiah in a while, let me give you some context. So in Isaiah 6 and 7, the northern kingdom Israel is becoming really good friends with Syria, another good power in the north. And they don't like the southern kingdom, Judah, they don't like their king, Ahaz. Okay? So they form this alliance, and they're coming. And they're going to remove Ahaz, and they're going to put a king that will agree with them, will go along with them, will follow them in their apostasy, ultimately. What do you think the people of Judah, the southern kingdom, the one tribe against ten, what do you think Judah, how do you think they felt when that emissary comes and says, yeah, Israel's coming, and we're bringing Syria with us. Go ahead and surrender now. Fear. Fear. Isaiah 7, verse 2 says, When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the, pe the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Fear. Deep fear. Fear that shakes you to your core. While the original readers that Peter's writing to, they're not facing a northern kingdom coming. They're probably not even facing physical persecution because he warns them later in chapter 4 that that's coming. Yet, they have opponents. They are facing slander and revilers. They are suffering. They feared the loss of being able to buy and sell in the marketplace. They feared their social standing being taken away. 
They fear their relationships with their family members. The peace will just be gone with their family, their neighbors, and their friends. They feared suffering and those who caused it. And Christians, we have the same fears when we face suffering today. We fear what others think. That's why we lash out. We fear that we have to set the record straight. I need to be vindicated. You need to hear me. We fear that we're not going to be liked. We fear that we've worked so hard at building something and it's just being stripped away. We fear of losing love and friendship with others. But Christian, the text this morning calls us as we look to our blessing to remove our fear. Remove our fear to not be troubled. And you may say, how? Sounds a lot easier to say than to do. You may say, you don't understand how much this hurts. You don't understand how hard it is to go to work, to talk to that person, to not lash out, to not shut down. And you're right, I likely don't. But your Savior does. Look up in chapter 2, starting in verse 21. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So he did good. He did the ultimate good. He only did good. And yet, continuing with Peter, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He didn't fear his opponents and have the need to lash out, to set the record straight, to make sure everyone hears how he's being treated wrongly. He didn't vindicate himself. He didn't revile. He didn't threaten. He continued to say, your will be done, not mine. All the way to the point that, continuing with Peter again, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. So fear not, friend. Fear not. If you are in Christ, if you have looked to his cross for your righteousness and for your forgiveness of sins, you are forgiven. Fear stems from our greatest desires being taken from us. And the greatest surety we can have are the words of Jesus Christ saying, it is finished. That changes who we are and how we live. Whatever the tempter says, whatever poison he whispers, whatever slanderers might say about you and your intentions or revile you about what you've done, Jesus has said, it is finished. Your king has declared you forgiven. And the cross and his blood are the proof. Friend, you don't have to fear. You can remove your fears. And not just because you're forgiven, but also because of the promises he's given you through your forgiveness. 
Peter goes on, for you were like straying sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Christian, you have a shepherd and an overseer. Hear his promise. Your shepherd tells you, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. Here's your promise, friend. And they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. Here's another promise of your shepherd. In Luke 21, Jesus tells his disciples, you will be delivered up. Not not by the wicked that you picture in your head, but by your parents and brothers and relatives and friends. How terrifying. The deepest relationships we should have will be severed. And some of, the, some of you, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. Friend, you will suffer, but you're unharmable. Here's the point, Christian. In your suffering, you don't need to fear. It's not simply, don't fear. It's not that bad. It's Christian. You are forgiven. You have a shepherd. You have an overseer. You don't need to fear. Suffering is painful. Suffering is frightening. But you have no need to fear. God has redeemed you. Your king has forgiven you. Your judge will vindicate you for all the good you've done and received suffering for. He will vindicate you. Vengeance is his. Your shepherd does today and forever protect you. And your Lord, while you may fear that you will lose love and friendships, your Lord loves you. If you are in Christ, in your suffering, there is no need to There is no need to fear. And so through our suffering, this way, as we suffer this way, as our fear is stripped away, we ourselves are sanctified because we grow in facing our suffering as Christ faced his without fear, trusting the Father, being able to say, your will be done, not mine. We suffer like him, and we continue on in it just as he did. Not only are we sanctified through our suffering, we are also called to sanctify Christ during our suffering, in our suffering. We remove our fear, and we revere Christ, our third R. Look back at the passage with me at verse 15. I'm going to start at the end of verse 14. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. This is the second command of the text, and really it's the command of the text. 
It's the central command and point in your suffering. Yes, we remove our fear, we remember our blessing, and we revere Christ. I don't love the English, the ESV's translation here. It kind of jumbles up the words saying, honor Christ the Lord as holy. But the word here for honor as holy, this, this command literally means it is hallow. Hallow. Where else have we heard that word before? Jesus Hold, Peter, this is how you pray. Remember? The Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. So instead of fearing those who can cause suffering, we are to hallow Christ who frees us from our fear in suffering. What does it mean, though? What does it mean to hallow Christ? In the most basic sense, it means to set him apart to sanctify him, to set him apart from all other things. One pastor wrote, what's it mean to hallow Christ? Regard him as unique, one of a kind, without peer or rival in his purity, in his rectitude, and in his goodness. Put him in a category by himself, the highest place the greatest value, the most supreme treasure, the greatest admiration, the most cherished prize, the one you esteem and honor and love the most out of all persons and all things in this world. That's what it means to honor, to hallow, to sanctify Christ. It means he is everything. He is everything. And notice where we sanctify Christ as Lord. Where is this to be done? In our hearts. So it's not simply telling us to believe that Jesus is Lord. It's more than that. Because your heart is the launching pad from which your behavior goes. It's to change what you believe in a way that changes how you live. What this does is it cultivates our belief that Christ is Lord into a conduct that reveals Christ is Lord. Think about it this way. If I revere myself in my heart, then I will live in a specific way, a very specific way. I will live in a way that reveals that my way is the right way, that my ideas of truth are the correct ideas and they cannot be challenged, that my desires in life so what I wear, how I look, what I do, who I love, that all of those are good because I'm revered. Those are right. They should be affirmed and pursued because I am me. I am who I am. I am good. I revere myself. And so I act in a way that promotes and prizes me. What Peter's saying, in your suffering, friend, revere Christ. Put him in the center of your heart as the most treasured and beautiful and good. And if you do that, you will live very differently. You will live in a way that reveals that his way is the right way. You will live in a way that reveals that his truth is true. That 
my desires in life will be centered upon living in the life that he has called me to live. So how I look, what I do, who I love, all of those things will be pursued through the lens that Christ is the most precious and true and good. I revere him in my heart, and so I act in a way that promotes and prizes him. That's what it means to sanctify Christ in our hearts. That means we revere him and we reveal him. And so Christians, we need to ask ourselves, who or what do I revere? Who or what do I revere? Is it my children? Is it my spouse? Is it my future? Is it my pride and reputation? Do I revere a political position? Do I revere my preferences? The fact that it's in our text tells us, friends, this is something we all face. And this is a question we all need to ask. We are all susceptible to revere in our hearts, especially during suffering, everything other than Christ. And the quickest way to identify what we truly revere is to look at how we suffer. As we suffer, our grip is slipping. Whatever it is we're revering is becoming jeopardized. And so our response in suffering quickly reveals what we truly revere. And so this is another way that our suffering is sanctifies Christ in our heart and it sanctifies us. It exposes where we do not revere Christ, where we trust what we've done more than what he's accomplished, where we trust what we want more than what he's called us to do. It is a refining, a burning of the dross, testing the genuineness of our faith. And so as you suffer for doing good, friend, Christian, let whatever you revere more than Christ be put in its place. That doesn't mean cast away, maybe, if it's sin, but if it's your children, just put them in their place. If it's something else, put it in its place and make sure Christ is the center of everything. He is the great and true prize and comfort in your suffering. To revere him is to look at him for my comfort and not those other things as I suffer. And as we do that, what kind of response will that lead to? What describes the conduct that comes from a heart that has sanctified Christ apart from everything else? Hope. Hope. You live with hope because it can't be taken from you. Because Jesus is alive. The truth of the resurrection means you are unharmable because your blessing, as long as he lives, it is before you and he is alive. You live with a hope. It replaces your fear with hope. And the text explains that this hope, it sticks out. People will notice it. When you're suffering for doing good and you have no fear of them, but instead you continue to press on, trusting and praising Christ, what is wrong with that person? Didn't they hear what he said? They're going to ask you, what's, what's going on with you? They're going to ask for a reason for the hope 
that is in you? And how do we give our reason? How do we respond? That's our next R. We respond with gentleness. Look back. We're going to start in verse 15, and we're going to read through the end of 16. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Christians, as we've said, as we revere Christ as Lord in the midst of suffering, we will reveal a hope that will be asked about. There's so much on these two verses that can be said. Some people like to give a sermon just to verse 15, and there's a place for that. It's every apologist's favorite verse because it says, be ready to make a defense. Amen. Absolutely. The beauty of that is, friend, the Christian faith can be defended. It's not a mystery cult. There is grounds, the word of God, that we can stand upon and say, this is why I believe what I believe. Beautiful. Yet, Peter is wanting us to see specifically our conduct in that defense is extremely important. To give a defense is fine, but how you give that defense is extremely important. It reveals, even more so, your hope. So we are to give our defense with gentleness and respect. When we suffer for doing good, we are to verbally respond and to defend our hope with gentleness and respect. Now, neither one of these responses, if we're honest, if we've, we've been tracking with Peter, this shouldn't be surprising. It's almost the logical conclusion of the first three points. First, consider gentleness. We are told, don't have fear of those who can cause suffering. So in your response, if you don't fear them, it makes perfect sense that I'm not going to be hard. I'm not going to be critical. I'm not going to be snarky. I'm not going to be pointed, but instead gentle, because I don't fear them, and because I revere Christ instead. I don't consider my reputation to be more important and needed to be defended. I don't consider the record having to be set straight and me be vindicated. I can be gentle because I don't have to prove I'm right and I don't have to make sure everyone knows how ridiculous they are. That's not gentle. That's not revering Christ. Instead, I can look to verse 16, and I can see that the revilers and slanderers, that they will be shamed, and it won't be by me. It won't be by my words. It won't be by my defense. It will be by God when he returns. Because vengeance is the Lord's. So that causes gentleness because I don't have to do it and because, friend, the way you present the gospel to people, if you present it with harshness, not winsome, why are they going to hear? And that's the end for those who do not hear and do not respond in faith. 
May we not put any stumbling blocks or roadblocks between those who are currently slandering us and reviling us and receiving the forgiveness of Christ before he returns. May we be gentle and winsome in the way we communicate our defense so that they see and know in themselves through faith experience the hope that we have as well. And not only can we look to the judgment, but chapter 4, Peter writes, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself. Hear that again. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal life in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Remember the blessing. God himself is coming for you. Your shepherd will return. You can be gentle, friend. You can be gentle. Now, respect. Gentle and respect. The word here, translated as respect, is the word for fear. Peter says, to yet with gentleness and fear. Yet, that's interesting, isn't it? Because he just said in verse 14, have no fear. What kind of fear is he talking about? Well, he's told us twice already to have a fear. First in chapter 1, verse 17. As we consider our conduct before God who is holy, conduct yourselves with fear. And then explicitly in chapter 2, verse 17, we heard the command, fear God. Christian, as we give our defense, we are to be gentle, winsome, and in a way that we understand that God is before us. We fear him. We need to remember that God reads every post and every text and every email. We need to remember that God hears every comment, every phone call, and every grumble. And this is not to say, look out for angry God over there. This is to say, child of God, your father cares about how you speak. Ambassador for the king, your king is with you and he cares about the content and the conduct of your message. Give your defense with gentleness, understanding that your king and your father are standing beside you with fear of God. This, again, is how we are sanctified in our suffering. We become more like Christ, who does not have to revile, who does not have to threaten, but can continue to say, not my will, but your will be done. Now finally, friends, our last R. Rest. Rest in his will. Our last point this morning is that as we face suffering, we remember the blessing. We remove our fear of those who cause suffering. We revere Christ as the most precious and beautiful and glorious. We respond with gentleness and fear of God, and we rest. 
We rest in his will. Look at verse 17. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. The text explains that we respond with gentleness and fear because it's better to suffer for doing those things than for coming out guns blazing, hot-headed, loose-lipped, spewing evil and hurtful things. It's the final way Peter's saying, press on in doing good, in being gentle, in representing your king, because it's better to suffer as he suffered for doing good than it is to suffer for being hard and backbiting and critical and evil. But in the middle of this last statement, Peter reminds us of a great comfort in our suffering. That as we face suffering for doing good, it is the will of God. Now at first, this may not seem to fit within a, your system of theology, or maybe you don't find this comforting. But friend, this is the story that we read over and over and over again through Scripture. You come from a long line of those who have suffered by the will of God for his glory and their good. Joseph, the prized son of his father, he obeyed his father, and what happened? His brothers tried to kill him. Instead, Reuben's like, oh, let's not do it. Let's sell him to, into slavery. And then when he's a slave, his master's wife tries to seduce him, and he does what's good and says no, and runs. And what happens? He gets thrown in jail. He, he tells, the, the, he prophesies the dreams of those in jail doing good, and they forget about him. Finally, he gets out. Finally, his brothers come to Egypt after he has been lifted in Egypt and looked upon favorably by Pharaoh, and they're scared because they know that they reviled him and they slandered him and they did evil to him as he did good. And what does he say? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. God meant it. Literally, God planned it. Good. Job, Ruth, David, Daniel, Paul, the list goes on of saints who have said, Not my will, but your will be done, have faced suffering for God's glory and for their good. But all of them are just a mere shadow of the ultimate good one and the ultimate good act that's the one that suffered, the ultimate sufferer. Jesus, the perfect man who never sinned, was sold to his enemies. He was beaten and he was exchanged for a thief. He did good, the thief did bad, and he gets exchanged for the thief. And he was crucified for your and my sin. Why? Acts 2.23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men because it was God's will. Because God chose to use the greatest suffering to save his people, to sanctify Christ, to set him apart and make him the most glorious and worthy savior of all. 
and to sanctify you, making you more and more into his image. God has always willed to use suffering for his glory and for our good. So to you who are suffering, today, I want to end with two points for you. First, this means that your suffering is not by accident. It's not because God is absent. It's not because God wasn't paying attention. He knows what you are facing. Satan is a lion on the prowl, but he is a lion that's on a leash in the hand of God. He prowls under God's sovereign rule. Your suffering is not out of control. Your suffering is under God's control and in his hand. And he is a good father. Second, in suffering, we can often feel that no one knows. We think that we suffer in silence. And often we do. Its weight cannot be understood. Our heartbreak cannot be verbalized. Our pain cannot be shared or sympathized with. But Christian, if God wills it, then he knows. He understands and he hears. And because Christ faced the greatest suffering on your behalf, he can sympathize with you. As Pastor Dan said, sympathy is walking into your emotional house and sitting down with you, listening and feeling alongside you. Jesus can do that. There is no suffering that you go through silently and unknown. God hears every cry at night and he catches every tear. Christ has felt and he sits with you in your suffering. Believe this text, knowing that you can put your fear away. You can revere Christ and you can rest in his will. In the song we're about to sing, the songwriter wrote it from God's perspective to the sufferer. And he captured this very truth. He looks at Isaiah 43 and he says, when through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be with thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. To you who are suffering, take heart. The river will not overflow. Your troubles, he will use them to bless you. Your deepest distress, he will use to sanctify. Rest in his will. Returning to the tailors. We started with the tailors. I want to end with the tailors. After the riot, a young Jow, Maria Taylor, who's pregnant at this time, jumped out of a second-story window with her children pregnant. She's asked by the mayor, governor, the power of the area, what punishment do you want enforced? And she replied, punishment. I really have not considered that question, as it is nothing to do with me. The revenge I desire is the wider opening up of the country to our work. I shall count our physical sufferings light and our mental anxieties, severe though they were, well repaid if they may work out the further opening up of the country to us for the spread of our master's kingdom. And on November 18th, 
three months later, Hudson, Maria, and the whole team re-entered Yangzhou, committed to preach Christ where he had not already been named, even after the evil Yangzhou had paid them for their compassion and sacrifice, for doing good. They suffered for doing good, and yet they sanctified Christ in their suffering, saying and showing that he was more precious than their safety and their vindication. And they were sanctified through their suffering, responding to their opponents as Christ himself responded. May we sanctify Christ in our hearts, in our suffering, and may we be sanctified ourselves through our suffering. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this text this morning. We thank you for meeting us where we are, for reminding us that we are unharmable because Christ is risen, and for comforting us that while we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, while we face suffering, while we face suffering for doing good, that you know that you're with us that Christ is precious and worth it, and that you will deliver us home safely. Father, may we remember our blessing. May we remove our fear. May we, may we revere Christ, respond in gentleness, and let us, Father, by your Spirit, to rest in your will as we face suffering. We pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen.